I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this episode of The Trade Guys, we'll review Catherine Tai's nomination hearing and gauge how much of the Trump administration's trade policy, the Biden team, will continue. Plus, we'll take a look at the administration's emerging China policy, including its outreach to allies and decision to let a controversial Trump-era supply chain rule proceed. And we'll discuss new momentum in the U.S. for a carbon border adjustment. Stay tuned for all that and much more on this episode of The Trade Guys. Gentlemen, it's a new week and there's lots of trade to talk about, starting with President Biden's nominee for Chief of Trade, Catherine Tai, U.S. Trade Representative, delivered comments this week on China. And she talked about the phase one trade pact. A lot of this sounds like a lot of what President Trump had put in place on China. So what about it, Scott? Well, first, yes, uh, this is all part of her confirmation hearing, which uh, I think the news that it sounds familiar is, I think, good in that it senses some continuity between administrations in terms of U.S. policy, which I think is wise on her part and uh, helpful overall for a little continuity. And of course, China's commitments did not expire because we changed administrations in the United States. So I, I think overall, I sense that she was trying to avoid creating a controversy uh, which she did well, and of course today was voted out of committee affirmatively by a voice vote, and will probably be confirmed for the position in the full Senate next week. Bill? Well, I have to say I'm a little bit disappointed. Not what she said about China. I think what she said about China was predictable and fine. But having been through the confirmation process myself, there's two fundamental rules. Uh, one is grovel a lot. And the other one is don't make any promises. And she was superb at both, which was good. I do think, though, that on the don't make any promises part, she missed some opportunities to be a little bit more forthcoming than she was. Basically, she echoed what Biden said in the campaign, which is a safe thing to do because the president said it, it's the policy, and I think that's fine. But when she was asked to be a little more forthcoming on things, one example being the U.S.-U.K. trade agreement, they're a close ally. I mean, she could have said, you know, we'd like to continue that and see where it leads and be noncommittal about an outcome. But instead, she said, well, you know, a lot has changed in the last couple of years and, you know, the uh, economics has changed and I need to take a, a fresh look at the whole thing. I mean, that had to be kind of discouraging, I think, to the British. And I, I just think that there were some other missed opportunities on the WTO issues. She sort of said what you'd expect, which is we have problems with the appellate body and which are now no different from Trump's problems, which are actually no different from Obama's problems. So it's not new exactly. But I was kind of hoping she would say, you know, it's really important that we get it back up and working and uh, imply some sense of urgency to solving these problems. And she didn't. So I'm a little worried, frankly, about where this is all going. So you would have liked to have seen her describe a clearer vision of trade policy during her confirmation hearing? Is that what you're saying? No, I think that would have been asking too much. But uh, I don't think she would have gotten in trouble with anybody on the committee if she had said, you know, I'd like to resume the negotiations with the UK. You know, I, I can't commit to an outcome because we haven't talked yet, but, you know, they're an important ally. And I don't think there's anybody on the committee that would say that that was a bad thing to do. I also don't think there's anybody on the committee who would have been offended if she said, 
Uh, it's important that we resolve the WTO appellate body issue soon because, you know, that's an important element of what they do. So I, I just think she missed some opportunities to be more forthcoming than she has been in a way that there would have been no downside. Well, as, as an old results-oriented corporate guy, she got the job done, so we'll take it. <laughs> she did get the job done, and, you know, there is the rule, you know, don't rock the boat, and she probably was familiar with, uh, you know, what, what now, or soon-to-be Secretary Raimondo at, at Commerce ran into when she initially would not commit to keeping Huawei on, on the end of these list, and that got her into trouble and got a hold on her nomination, but in the end, you know, she was confirmed 83 to 15. So, you know, you can occasionally actually venture to have an opinion and not suffer for it. Now, you know, if you have a thousand opinions like Nira Tandon had, then you have a problem. But, you know, an occasional opinion, it's fine. So, Bill, I, I can't let this go by without saying that, you know, if I had started a sentence in front of my teenage sons by saying, you know, when I myself went through the confirmation process, they would have said, Dad, you know, that's what's known as in our terms as a full flex. And they would have been, you know, putting up their biceps. So I, I don't want to let that go <laughs> without without comment. So I just wanted to, you know, of course, you have been through the confirmation process. So just wanted to point that out. Back to Ty, her testimony to some is the latest sign that Washington's approach, you know, to China is going to be similar to what President Trump's approach was. Should we expect the next four years to be more of the same in terms of tariffs? You know, will tariffs on hundreds of billions of dollars worth of Chinese imports become the new norm? Look, I'm, I'm uh, skeptical that we will have a uh, tariff man 2.0 in uh, the Biden administration. Uh, so look, it's one of those situations where tariffs have always been a tool of trade policy, and they're particularly useful uh, in the context of unfair trade policy. So uh, anytime you have a, an action like a Section 301, whatever it might be, uh, tariffs are, are usually the instrument by which you're attempting to get progress uh, from, your, from your counterparty. So that will remain the same. The other thing that will remain the same is China will continue to be sort of the, the, the focus of U.S. Uh, concern about their practices. And so uh, once again, the, but I don't expect the kind of prominence to individual tariffs on individual items uh, that uh, that we had in the previous administration. Now, having said that, tariffs uh, always have a, uh, a micro effect as well as a macro effect. The macro effect in the economy, we seem to have gotten along without too much drama. But on a micro level, they're affecting certain firms who'd rather import without those tariffs. And they may be protecting competitors here in the United States. Uh, so so there are politics involved with either adding more tariffs or withdrawing them. And th those politics will, will be the same as they were in the uh, Trump administration, but uh, perhaps with a different setting on the volume control. Bill? I think eventually they get rid of them, but it's going to take a while. I mean, the axiom of trade negotiation is there's no free lunch. Uh, these are, in political terms, these are leverage. Uh, I don't think Biden gets rid of them. I think he's acutely aware of the collateral damage they've done here, uh, we've talked about this before, not just to farmers, but to manufacturers for whom China is part of the supply chain. So I, I think the, the economic argument for getting rid of them is, is compelling, but he can only get rid of them in, in the context of, of something that he can call Chinese concessions. So it's going to take a while to, you know, to have that 
dialogue and roll all that out. Uh, so I don't see anything happening soon, but I, uh, I don't see him adding new ones, but getting rid of the old ones, I think is going to take some time. And then, of course, the black swan in all of this is, um, the Chinese do something that, that, uh, you know, further uh, compromises the relationship. You know, they, uh, they collide with one of our car- aircraft carriers in the South China Sea, or they, you know, further shut down democracy in Hong Kong, if that, if it's possible to go further, uh, or there's some new outrageous development in Xinjiang province. You know, this is an administration that has made human rights an important part of its policy, and they're going to react to those things. And I think we can't rule out those kinds of possibilities, but they'll be China initiated. They won't be Biden initiated. He'll be reacting. Colliding with one of our carriers sounds like a bad plan. Uh, it yeah. does, but you, if you remember the aircraft incident in the in the George W. Bush administration, I, you know, the, the Chinese have this tendency to to test. They test newbies. You know, when there's somebody that they don't really know, they they do something like that just to see how they'll react. It's not designed to create a big incident. You can always interpret these things multiple ways. It could be, you know, a pilot just decided to you know get a little closer than he was supposed to get. Uh, or you could decide it could be the government decided, uh, let's see what uh, let's see what this guy Bush is made of. But don't they know Joe Biden? I mean, especially Xi Jinping. They know Biden uh, and, and they know each other personally. He and Xi Jinping, because they were actually vice presidents at the same time for the first part of Obama. Mm-hmm. So I don't think they necessarily feel a need to do that. On the other hand, you know, big country, a lot of people and you may have naval captains that decide that. They're going to be a little bit more aggressive than their orders. Uh, it would not be the first time that happened. But there's a history to this with, with the Chinese, and they do engage in this kind of provocative action uh, with uh, hopefully no consequences, just to see how the other side is going to react. And I can see them deciding, you know, when you have a president who has said human rights is going to be a really important element of my policy, um, I can see the Chinese wanting to test that a little bit and say, well... You know, maybe that's going to mean that you're not going to get anything else done with us if you're going to if you're serious about that. Well, let's talk for a minute about the United States effort under President Biden to enlist our allies to counter China's technology push, because that has to be part of this, too. Right. I mean, Biden's been portraying U.S. relations with China as a clash of values, right? Democracy versus autocracy. But his rhetoric obscures the administration's more pragmatic approach of cobbling together groups of countries to work jointly on technology. And the goal is to stay ahead of China in things like semiconductors, artificial intelligence, and other advances that are expected to really define the economy and military of the future. So there's already discussions going on with U.S. allies about efforts to, you know, to get into this. So what do you guys think the advantages or drawbacks of this? They're calling it you know, uh, one one U.S. official calls it a modular approach. Some of this is to counter, you know, the Huawei's of the world. What what do you guys think of this? Well, great concept, difficult execution, and I think that's probably what they're going to find out. Look, an effort that that co- that combines or creates an alliance with uh, important trading partners and in in many cases treaty allies. Uh, would be very useful in this sort of situation. So I, I understand why they're doing it. However, interests are quite different uh, among the parties. And so actually pulling together a group that is prepared to actually do make hard choices together 
is uh, it's not obvious at this point, and it will take a, a concerted effort. I agree with that. I think what's creative about it that I hadn't really thought about is is the modular uh, piece of it that you're going to have in theory multiple coalitions consisting of different countries at different times addressing different issues. So the people that approach China on climate change, which might be a constructive, a more constructive conversation than some of the others, that might be a whole entirely different group of countries than uh, the people that want to approach China on subsidies and subsidy rules. That's interesting and, and creative. It complicates the implementation part because it means you've got many balls in the air rather than just one. But I think it's a, it's a creative approach. It'll be interesting to see what happens. What about this rule that the Biden administration plans to you know, allow to go forward? This is the Trump era rule aimed at combating Chinese technology threats, and it's supposed to take effect next month. Business Roundtable and others have said that the rule's unworkable and shouldn't be considered uh, you know, for final publication without revision. Um, and the rule could affect as many as four and a half million American businesses of all sizes. What's the motivation behind this? Well, first of all, what, what does the rule do and what's the motivation behind it? And don't things like exports controls and CFIUS resolve issues related to foreign transactions and technology transfer? The problem with it is its breadth and its vagueness and the, the, the potential for inclusion of that many companies and, and the millions of workers that go on with it. CFIUS and export controls deal with part of it, but it refers to transactions. What does this rule actually do? That's different. The thing that's different about it is it can affect imports and it would prevent American companies from buying uh, Chinese technology that poses a security risk here. Uh, and all the other infrastructure that we've set up over the years has dealt with exports, you know, making sure that in, the, in the, this case, the Chinese don't get American technology that will help them build their military establishment or and acquire other strategic capabilities. This subsumes that, but it is mostly, but that's already covered. It, it really affects imports. So think Huawei, think telecommunications equipment, think buying iPhones from China. Not that that many people do that. And that's the kind of thing that, that would be affected by this. The fact that it, it, it covers transactions makes it quite broad in its scope. Uh, much broader than anything anything we've, that, a, that an export control regime might deal with. Uh, but importantly, the world's very complicated, and the way products are made are very complicated. And the way companies operate is complicated and somewhat idiosyncratic. So it will affect a lot of it'll affect a lot of things that nobody in Washington has ever thought about. And uh, so I think that's why the alarm went up from the roundtable and some of the other because you're, if you're a, if you're a company with operations around the world, you have a lot of, of interactions with and transactions with firms in China that are not obviously aware at the top level and, and probably are, are quite deep in the weeds that, that may clearly be affected here. I think the, the thing that has the roundtable upset is that basically it implies you're going to have to get government permission to do a huge volume of transactions. And I, I've been down this road with the government in the past when I was lobbying and we, on a different issue, we came in and said, you realize that, you know, the, the, the way you've defined the topic is you've caught a whole bunch of things that don't have any security implications and, and that you probably didn't intend to catch. And the answer was enlightening. It's a classic bureaucratic answer, which is, well, you know, we're going to approve all those things, but we just want to know about them. 
you know, it's an information gathering exercise. We're going to say yes. And for the companies, that's really intrusive because it means you have to show up in the government every time you want to do something. And the government saying, well, we're going to say yes all the time doesn't really make you feel all that better because it creates an enormous amount of uncertainty about your planning. And it basically in, mm -hmm. it injects, you know, the government decision making process into what are normally commercial decisions. You know, it's one of those what's a transaction. Well, if you're selling a product in, in say, some third country and it has components that where a research lab in China prepared the uh, the safety data sheet is transmitting that safety information about the product to a third country and directed by a U.S. headquarters company. Is that a transaction? If it is, there'll be lots of transactions. So why is the Biden administration moving ahead with this rule, despite all the opposition from the business community? I think it's because he's got very little maneuvering room on China. And he's kind of boxed in. He's got public opinion. Uh, more than 70% of the American people have an unfavorable view of China, which is a, a marked shift over the last, you know, five to 10 years. This has taken time to develop, but it, it's, you know, compared to 20 years ago, it's, it's, it's very different. And this is a, this is a bipartisan thing. I mean, studies have shown that it's, it's on both sides of the aisle. There's opposition to China almost equally. If you listen to Chuck Schumer, it's, you know, he sounds like Donald Trump on China. He sounds like Bob Lighthizer on China. But I think the biggest political problem is you've got at least five Republican senators all running for president in 2024. And a key element of the campaign for all of them is who can be toughest on China? And the way you show you're tough on China is, one, by criticizing the Democrats for being soft on China, and two, by trying to outdo your competitors by being coming up with ever more hardline things to propose. So between Senators Cruz, Cotton, Hawley, Rubio, and Scott, you know, you've got a, a mini campaign here to say, you know, Biden's selling out the country. The Democrats are soft on China. Vote for me in 2024. I mean, the irony of that is that, you know, that the first thing they have to do is get, get Trump off the stage uh, in order for that to 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 mean anything. But, you know, they're going ahead as if that didn't matter. But it puts the president in kind of a box because anything he does, uh, they're going to attack. Now, it's it, it is hard for them to attack when he says, I'm just going to do what Trump did. Even if he cancels the rule or postpones the rule, even because of its technical infeasibility, you have a political ad that writes itself. President Biden's soft on China. We had this tough rule and he he deferred it because he just couldn't stomach it. Interesting. So who do you guys think is the Republican nominee for president in 2024? None of the senators Bill mentioned. Who do you think it is, Scott? Guess or die, Ron DeSantis, yep. governor of Florida. I agree. I'm with you, Scott. Big state. I think he wins re-election in a near landslide fashion in 2022, which sets him up for the run. I agree. I think it's DeSantis. Bill? I don't know. I just don't think he's very appealing. I agree with Scott that I don't think any of the of the five senators, I don't see them getting across the finish line. But I, yeah, I go back to what I said before. You know, the first thing they got to do is, is figure out how to get Trump off the stage. And if you saw the poll from this the, the CPAC conference over the weekend, if Trump runs, 60 plus percent of the people are going to support him. Yeah, 55 percent for Trump, 21 percent for DeSantis. Everybody else is in the low, low, low single digits. 
Keep in mind, the CPAC straw poll was won four times by Mitt Romney. There you go. Yeah. I'm with you, Scott. I, I think it's DeSantis. Trump's influence over the party is still huge, which is why DeSantis would be the nominee. But I'm with you. I think it's DeSantis. I think you're saying that because the conference was in Orlando and probably half the people that showed up were from Florida and they think that he's great. You know, give it a couple of years and we'll see. Plus, he has to deal with Rubio. How does he push Rubio off the Florida stage? Well, it remains to be seen. This is going to be an interesting one. Back to trade. Final thing I wanted to bring up with you guys is the carbon border adjustment issue. How significant is it that the administration now has a stated interest in pursuing a carbon border adjustment? Does the carbon border adjustment have any chance of getting implemented in the Democrats' narrow margin in Congress? I do think that if you're going to get serious about any commons issue like climate change, you do have to develop a set of neutral rules that provide the kind of arrangements that are necessary to ensure that there's not cheating in the program. Now, we haven't done a great job of it in the trade community. The, the fisheries subsidies program, which is a classic problem of the commons, has not distinguished itself. It's gone nowhere at the WTO in 20 years. But when it comes to the pricing of carbon and border adjustments or the, the carbon intensity of products, I'm more hopeful than I was. This was a non-starter uh, uh, when the Congress considered it, in, I guess, 2009. But I noticed last week the American Petroleum Institute came out in favor of carbon pricing. And so the tectonic plates are shifting. I don't, I don't know if they're in favor of it now or 10 years from now or, or what that means. But, but I think that, first of all, when it comes to dealing with climate change, I think there is a, the notion of doing something in concert with other nations is a much stronger commitment, even within the United States, than it was five, 10 years ago. But also, the, the, the importance of border adjustment and neutral rules, hammering out a regime that would do that, I think is the critical part to practically making it happen. One factoid, I guess, API hasn't actually come out with that yet. They're talking about coming out with it. They probably will, but uh, as with a lot of things in the lobbying community, there's a footnote. And the footnote is, we can be for carbon pricing, but uh, we want to get rid of a whole bunch of regulations. So it's carbon pricing in lieu of a regulatory approach. It's not carbon pricing, period. And then they have to flesh out what all that means. So it's not like a, a gift to the environmentalists. Let's put it. Let's put it that way. It's a good reminder for that. I need to read the fine print. <laughs> Don't we all? It will be real received, actually, because it's significant. I mean, it may not be significant once you read the fine print, but the headline is, you know, the, the group that represents the fossil fuel industry is going to say that they can accept putting a price on carbon. You know, that's a significant development. I think it's a, a reflection of the fact that uh, the extent to which public opinion has, has, has changed on the issue. But actually doing that is going to be, is going to be difficult. I was on a phone conversation this morning with someone from the EU who was uh, involved in that, uh, among other things. And uh, he was sort of describing what, what they're talking about, which is not fully flushed out. And it was a funny conversation because he said, well, it's, it's, not, it's not a tax. The, the foreigners would, would have to buy credits, you know, from the EU that, that is, you know, re reflects the, you know, uh, the amount of carbon in the products that they're importing into the EU, which led me to think, well, real, basically it's a tax in disguise. I mean, you know, the foreigners are paying and you're giving them a piece of paper. Uh, that's 
kind of attacks, but it's not fleshed out. And it's clear that, you know, figuring out how to do that is complicated because how do you measure two things? Well, how do you price carbon, which is the first thing you have to agree on? And the second thing is, how do you measure the amount of carbon that is embedded into a finished product? So I'm, you know, I'm shipping cars to Europe. Now, this is not a very good example because American uh, automobile company cars are made are made in Europe. But let's hypothesize we're shipping cars to Europe from the United States. How do you figure out how much carbon is built into a, you know, into a Ford truck? I, that's, I mean, you can do that, but it's complicated and it's not non-controversial. And of course, the companies have an interest in making that number smaller. Uh, whereas the, the taxing authority probably has an interest in making it bigger. It's a lot of work to be done. Interesting. But so how would American businesses and consumers think about this policy? Like wh- how, how would the business community for, for starters really, would they embrace this at all? Well, look, the, the border adjustment part of it is the, is the part where there's lots of experience. And the, the place where there's experience with border adjustment is in value-added taxes, which any any firm that operates in Europe, or really any almost any place outside the United States, has to deal with border adjustments of the value-added taxes, uh, which are a considerable part of the tax revenue that that, uh, that governments collect in places other than the United States. That part is the straightforward part. The the complicated part is the, is both the price of carbon and that calculation. But it's not an insoluble problem. And look, the most most companies are much more committed to sustainable products because their investors are demanding it because uh, the, the the community that finances uh, their their initiatives uh, is demanding it and underneath that are the shareholders and voters uh, who are behind it so I do think that that there's there are ways to solve this none of it's straightforward uh, the border adjustment may be the maybe the part where there's the most uh, experience. The, the key point is the last one Scott made, I think. Companies will do it because their customers are going to demand it and, and their shareholders are going to demand it. I think there's been a sea change in, in public opinion about this. Uh, and the weather we've been having, you know, not only validates it, but, you know, I think it's convincing for people in all over the country. It's not just a sort of liberal coastal phenomenon. The hurricanes are in the Midwest. The tornadoes are in the Midwest. People are seeing and living with the consequences of climate change. And they're going to be telling, you know, the people they buy stuff from, you know, are you contributing, uh, you know, are you part of the problem or are you part of the solution? And as consumer demand shifts, they, you know, companies are not dummies. They're going to shift as well. All right, guys. Well, that'll have to be it for today, but we'll Hope to see our audience back next week. Same trade time, same trade channel, same full flexes will be happening right here on The Trade Guys. I'll think of something, yes. A few more things to flex about, no doubt. (laughs) To our listeners, if you have a question for The Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the trade guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.